0: thanks, Brother Nathaniel. And with that reading, we'll hand it over to Brother Sam to speak on the topic, Faithfulness in Bearing One Another's Burdens. Brother Sam. Well, thank you, Brother Jonah, and good afternoon, my brothers and sisters and Lord Jesus Christ, dear young people. I hope you're all refreshed from this morning's classes as well as being refreshed from the lunch so wonderfully provided for us today. As we grow in the truth, as we learn in the truth, there will be times when we face obstacles and challenges and trials that we feel we just could not have been prepared for. We see our brothers and sisters struggling and they feel as if they can't escape from the pit that they're in. And it's in the face of those challenges where we discover that our faithfulness to God, that faithfulness in good times, it means nothing if we are also not faithful when our brothers and sisters are struggling. (laughs) Loving our neighbor as ourselves doesn't just mean to do it when things are good. It especially means to do it when things are bad. So what does that look like, though, in the life of Zadok the priest? Well, as we mentioned in the first class, the lives of Zadok and the lives of King David would be intertwined. And if you come with me over into Second Samuel chapter 15, which we had read for us, we'll consider the most trying period of the life of King David. reading from verses 13 going to verse 23. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly, and bring evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said unto the king, behold, Thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And brothers and sisters, that is the start of the sorrows and sufferings of King David. This account right here is about as, as far on the other side of the spectrum as you can get from the joy that David must have felt bringing the ark into Jerusalem. From the joy of being around his brothers and sisters as he was crowned king and recognized as God's anointed. Here he was in despair, misery, he was, afl- he was afraid for his life. He had been betrayed by his own son, Absalom. And whereas before he seemed to have things on a lockdown, everything was under control. Now everything was spiraling out of control. His sons didn't listen to him. After this point, there will be other rebellions that cropped up in the kingdom of Israel. And we see David, even though he's surrounded by servants and household, loved ones, we see he must very much feel very alone. And while sin is in this world, brothers and sisters, there will be pain and suffering. It's a sad truth to recognize that the suffering of David, the pain of David, it's not unique to David. David. For there are many in our community, and there could very well be some in this very room, suffering silently, brothers and sisters fearing for their lives or for their livelihood, feeling the effects of betrayal and conflict within their physical or spiritual families. The life which once seemed under control could feel like it's spiraling out of control. These aren't just abject concerns. These are real fears real struggles, real trials that our brothers and sisters are going through right now, today. And just as David felt so lonely in his own struggles, even being surrounded by his servants and his subjects and his family, loneliness doesn't mean isolation. We can feel the loneliest in a crowded room within the ecclesial household. We can feel as if we're getting lost and completely isolated, even when we're among our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we know that pain, when we know what that loneliness and that suffering, when we know what that feels like inside, it helps us to appreciate the value of giving and receiving comfort. And not just... Platitudes that others can see. This isn't just like saying thoughts and good vibes. This is something substantial with action, something rooted in tangible hope. The Apostle Paul has this much to say over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'll turn with me over there, please. Because it's no secret that the ecclesia of the first century dealt with many trials. For they feared for their life from persecution from the Jews, from the Roman Empire. Father was against son, son was against father, brother against sister. But Paul encouraged them to stand firm. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4, Paul has this much to say, Blessed be God even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves have comforted from God. When we go through trials, when we go through struggles, we hope and we pray that God will bring us some form of comfort in some way or another. And through that comfort that we receive in our suffering and in our trials, that empowers us to be the comfort that somebody could be in their room, on their hands and knees, begging, pleading just for anybody to care. We have that power when God gives us the comfort. By comforting others in their affliction, We, in fact, could very well be the answer to their prayers. It's one thing to just say, I'm praying for you. It's another thing to say, I'm praying for you, but then also search in your heart. How can I be the answer to this person's prayers? If they're lonely, how can I go and reach out to them? If they're spiritually starving, how can I nourish them? We are called to be Word made flesh, even as the Lord Jesus Christ was the Word made flesh when they pray to God, God can use each and every one of you as a vehicle to fulfill his purpose in his will, not just in your own lives, but in the lives of others. And this was a role that Zadok, the Levites, and the priests were all prepared for. Because the work of the priesthood is a metaphor for ecclesial life. When you think about what the priest had to do, we don't have to turn there, but in Leviticus 13, it talks all about the lepers. And leprosy was not a pretty sight to behold. There were scabs and sickness. And the priest, he couldn't just say, no, I'm not dealing with this, and quarantine them and push them outside the camp. And we can't do the same to our brothers and sisters because when we see them struggling, it may look to us like a festering wound. In their spiritual lives within their hearts within their being we can't quarantine them we can't say that we're above this or we don't want to get our hands dirty because we might think of the priests as standing there in their linen robes but they offered sacrifices they slaughtered animals every single day they had blood and sweat on their robes and they saw the tired and weary and confused and lonely faces of those who didn't know where to start in your spiritual healing and they had to be physical doctors and spiritual doctors to understand the true condition that was plaguing them sin in the flesh, their own nature which was working against them which strove against them as they sought with their minds to be elevated in spiritual things the priests had to see through that to give them a diagnosis not to push them away, not to put on a hazmat suit they had to do something up close and personal to get their hands dirty. And so I tell you this, brothers and sisters. In the kingdom age, we do hope to be wearing robes of linen, symbolic of righteousness. But if your robe is still clean at the end of each and every day today, you aren't getting involved in the needs of others. We need to get our hands dirty and to be genuinely concerned and genuinely work and mediate and pray and teach how does Zadok, how does Zadok and the Levites, how do they bring the comfort that David so desperately needs to him? <clears throat> well, back in 2 Samuel 15, we see that, and it's not in the form of a sacrifice. This doesn't come in the form of a slaughtered bull or a goat, but rather it comes in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 24. And lo, Zadok also and all the Levites were with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had done, passing out of the city. So how does David bring this comfort to him? Well, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to him. And what's so important about the Ark? Well, in the most holy place, in the tabernacle, God's presence dwelt above it. The remedy for David's suffering, it wasn't built up in a sacrifice this time, but it was to understand that God is present If you will take a look with me over in Numbers chapter 10. Because in Numbers 10 we see the ark in motion. <clears throat> a lot of times people think about the ark of the covenant and they think about Indiana Jones and they think about the faces of the wicked being melted off. But the ark represented so much more than that. In Numbers chapter 10, reading from verses 35 and 36. Here's what it has to say. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Yahweh, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. Now you might recognize that, and, you might, and you, in fact it might be in your margins. That's directly quoted by David when he, wrote, when he wrote Psalm 68, which we'll turn to in a moment. The ark in times past the times of Hophni and Phinehas, especially, they almost use it as a good luck charm to say, if the, if the ark is up and on our shoulders, our enemies will be scattered before us. But this wasn't the entire picture, was it? Because those who thought that way might have thought that when the Levites, led by Zadok, led by Abiathar, that when they went to Jerusalem and bore the ark on their shoulders, people might have said, they're going to war. Well, in a sense but not the kind of war that they were going to this was again that spiritual warfare the warfare of the mind but i do believe brothers and sisters that back in second samuel 15 that it lays up in the word when it says to set down because look at what it says in numbers 36 sorry numbers 10 verse 36 And when it rested, he said, Return, O Yahweh, unto the many thousands of Israel. To set down the ark was to allow the ark to rest. For the ark to rest was a plea for God to dwell among his people. To return to the many myriads of Israel, as it says in the Hebrew. And Psalm 68 tells us that much. Because Psalm 68, in alluding to the Ark of the Covenant talks about the presence of God God dwelling with man God descending from man and in Psalm 68 verse 18 here's what it has to say thou hast ascended on high thou hast led captivity captive thou hast received gifts for men yea for the rebellious also that Yahweh God might dwell that Yahweh God might dwell Now, if I was to ask you where God dwells, the instant answer would, of course, be heaven. But where does God want to dwell? God wants to dwell with the brokenhearted. In Isaiah 57, in verse 15... It's a contrast that we're given through the prophet Isaiah of God's holiness versus man's frailty, transience. In Isaiah 57, reading from verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, With him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That word contrite, The, the Hebrew word for that is literally powder. This is somebody who's crushed. Have you ever felt so spiritually defeated on your last legs that you felt that a light breeze could just take you away and scatter you to all corners of the earth where you could never be gathered again? Because that's what it's like to be contrite. That's what it's like to be crushed in the powder. And that's where God wants to dwell. Not with those who are mighty in their own ways, but with those who are powder. Those who could be scattered at the lightest breeze. So where do we go when we're crushed? Well, it's a carnal instinct... To run for your life, isn't it? Fight or flight, self-preservation is the name of the game. But where does God want us to go? God wants us to take refuge in Him. Now, God's presence in the times of Israel dwelt in the tabernacle in the Most Holy, above the Ark of the Covenant. It was a place where those who felt crushed could find refuge, could find safety. And in modern terms, we might very well consider that Ecclesia. But the Ecclesia is not a physical building. The Ecclesia is made up of people, of brothers and sisters. In Ephesians chapter 2, reading from verses 19 to 22, here's what we're told. Now therefore ye... Are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. When somebody is feeling crushed, when somebody is feeling absolutely devastated on the inside, they're going to want to go to their place of refuge. And a lot of times when we get stuck in those situations, we rely on our flesh. And we might just stay at home, in our rooms, or maybe we'll just go somewhere far away from all of our problems. Sometimes it's not feasible for somebody that's struggling mentally, spiritually, to go to the ecclesia. So if we truly believe that the building is not a physical building, but a spiritual building made up of people, made up of brothers and sisters, then the ecclesia needs to go to that person. And they need to bring to them the comfort of God's presence, just as Zadok did, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to David in his time of suffering. It's been said at times that The Ecclesia is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for the wounded. Well, if this is a hospital, then I think it only makes sense that we should have an emergency crew on standby. That if we know that somebody's struggling, we don't wait for them to come here. Just as we wouldn't wait for somebody who's got an amputated leg to make their way to the hospital. No, we go to them, and we minister to them, and we comfort them. Because what does it say in Matthew chapter 18? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. That's the priesthood. To minister not just to Yahweh, but to our brothers and sisters, and to recognize that this ecclesia is made up of each and every one of you. You are all part of that building which is fitly framed together and is continually growing and continually expanding right up to the day where Christ returns. You're part of that. You're part of that building where they should be taking refuge. Now, we've talked a lot about the ark. We've alluded to it quite a bit. But what was in it? Now, not everything that was in the ark always stayed in the ark. If you would, just turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 9. Because they there in Hebrews chapter 9, we see a fairly succinct list of the three main objects that were in the ark. (coughs) Reading from Hebrews chapter nine, we'll go from verses one to four just to give some context because this is a commentary on the tabernacle how the physical point it forward to the spiritual. Then, verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was... And here's a list of three things, the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. These three items, each had their own distinct properties, yet all carried something essential in common. And these all pointed forward to a principle that David needed to hear in this time of his his suffering, of his anguish. Well, first we have the golden pot of manna. Well, what do we know about manna? Manna was the food on which the children of Israel fed on in the wilderness. And the thing about manna was that you gathered it in the morning. It could feed you for one day. And then the next day, it was corrupted and worms infested it and it stank. The only exception to that being on the the day before the Sabbath. When you can collect two days. And God would keep that for two. But then we see here in the Ark of the Covenant. That it was manna that was in a golden pot. And unlike the manna which corrupted after only one day. We see that this manna was encased in a vessel. Where it never corrupted. Encased with gold. This is symbolic of the flesh. That was once corruptible. That would decay. And be infested with death being made incorruptible and laid with immortality. David needed to see that. Well, not see, but hear. He needed to understand that the golden pot was in here. That corruptible flesh would one day be made incorruptible. And what about Aaron's rod? Well, Aaron's rod... Aaron's rod was his walking stick and when the people of Israel murmured against Yahweh and murmured against his priest, there was a challenge set before them. Set your rods here, and in the morning, the one whose rods budded, he will be my priest. And the next day, all the people saw that Aaron's rod had blossomed and bloomed. And what is that supposed to tell us? Well, you have a a rod a walking stick made of dead wood. And from this death, life sprung forth. God is able to bring newness of life from that which is devoid of life. And what about the tables of stone? Well, the tables of stone... It was God's Ten Commandments, wasn't it? It was the Word of God etched in stone. It can never be altered, never be erased. It endured forever. And God's Word indeed endures forever. He will fulfill what He has promised. And yes, if we allow God's Word to be written on the fleshly tables of our hearts, then He will, in His kingdom, put His name on our foreheads so the golden pot Aaron's rod and the tables of the covenant what do these three things have in common everything in the ark has an eternally abiding nature they symbolize the things which are eternal to encourage our brothers and sisters the ones who are in dire need of God's presence, we need to remind them of the eternal things that God has in store for us. It's not about invalidating the struggles that we're going with through the present, but pointing forward to the greater things that we have in store. And even though they are hidden from us now, even as the ark would have been hidden under that veil in the eyes of King David, they will soon be revealed. Because what does Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are told, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's the lesson, brothers and sisters, that King David had to learn in his time of suffering. Was he going through pain? Absolutely. Did it feel like it would last a lifetime? I imagine so. As I imagine, that must feel for all of us whenever we go through times of trial. That we feel like it's a never-ending darkness and there's no light, there's no escape. But this is the promise that God has for each and every one of us. It's for a moment in the eternal scheme of things. And as much as it's right in front of your face, don't look to the things which are happening before you. But look to the things which are unseen. Look to the things which are in the ark. Incorruptible flesh, newness of life, God's word being written on our hearts and in our foreheads. These are the eternal things that we need to hope for and look for and encourage each other to aspire to. Because God's presence dwells in the eternal. And if we want to feel God's presence, we too must put our minds from the things of the flesh to the things of the eternal. And in Romans 8, verse 18, which you don't have to turn there, but I will read it for you. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared. And if we feel how devastating and how consuming these things which impact us and afflict us and cause us to suffer, if these things afflict us and so Strong of a way that they impact every part of our minds and our thoughts and beings. How much more so will the things of the kingdom bring us joy and light and hope and newness of life? As immersive as these things are today, it's nothing to be compared to the glory of Yahweh, which will cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea. And will be manifest completely and holy. In all the hearts of those who love Him and seek Him, and look towards the things that are eternal. And brothers and sisters, after David saw the ark, after he saw the ark, he what does he do? He asks Zadok and Abiathar to return it to Jerusalem. He says, "Perhaps it's God's will that He will bring me back to see His habitation." And everything after that point in David's suffering, was there pain? Yes. Were there still sufferings and trials? Absolutely. But there was trust now. There was trust that God's will would be done and not his. He became resolved. And if you were to look in further detail at the suffering of David in exile from his son Absalom, you would see that... These sufferings foreshadow the suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ would one day endure in the Garden of Gethsemane, because we saw that he crossed over to Brook Kidron, even as the Lord Jesus Christ in John 19 crossed over to Brook Kidron. He was betrayed by his friend Ahithophel, the one who gave the counsel as it was called the counsel of God, and wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ betrayed by a dear friend too, even Judas Iscariot? And they both suffered the same fate, too. When Ahithophel's advice wasn't taken, he set his house in order and hanged himself. And when Judas realized what he had done, well, he hanged himself. And David, when he was going into further exile, when he was walking along that dirt road and Shimei kicked at him and spat at him and cursed at him, he didn't open up his mouth to revile him. He didn't stand up for himself. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was afflicted and bruised and beaten by the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities, he didn't lash out against those that lashed out against him either. But where does Zadok fit in? Well, I'll tell you where Zadok fits in. Come with me over to Luke chapter 22, please. Looking at Luke 22, verses 39 through 43. And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. The narrative takes special care to note that this angel appeared from heaven. And what do we know about heaven, brothers and sisters? Heaven is the place where God dwells. This angel came directly from God's presence. Zadok, bringing the ark, typified the angel sent from God that strengthened Christ in his moment of agony. Because we do see in verse 44 that he, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. And then after he prayed, the Lord Jesus Christ stood up and was resolved and said, nevertheless, not my will, But thine be done. And the Lord Jesus Christ did this by setting his mind not on the temporary suffering, as agonizing and enduring as it was at the time. But he set his mind on the eternal joy that was set before him. As we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That therefore, brothers and seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And tomorrow, brothers and sisters, if if God wills, we'll not only consider Zadok's final test of faithfulness in the face of rebellion, but we'll also, in our exhortation tomorrow, consider the reward of all faithful saints in the kingdom age. But as we conclude our session on Zadok today, I want to issue each and every one of you a challenge. Dare to be a Zadok. Dare to rejuvenate the passion you had for the truth when you were baptized. Dare to rise when you stumble and stand guard to prevent apathy in your life. And dare to be a faithful friend to your brothers and sisters, to remind them of the age to come when they can't see past the pain of the present.